my ears. So we get to read from Luke chapter 24, verse 53. Please stand for the reading of God's word. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are the witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I'll say it too. He is risen. So good to be together today to celebrate our Savior who died and then conquered death for us. And we've been on this journey, those of you that are here all the time, through Luke's gospel account, his his biography of Jesus, and we're focusing on his account of Jesus' resurrection. I think it's my favorite of all four uh, gospels. We heard three separate uh, stories, all from Luke, about this, this first day of the week. And what Luke gives us is this, this journey, I think, of the disciples being progressively opened up to the reality that Jesus was truly alive. And you think about how that journey was for them that day, where they started that day, how they were feeling when they woke up that morning, in total devastation and grief and confusion. Their whole lives were, were in turmoil and then how Jesus opens them up to the reality that he was alive. First, the women who go to the tomb, and the, 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 the tomb is opened. And then the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus walks among them as a stranger, and it says, and he opened the scriptures to them. And then, then all of them gathered t- together at the end of the day, and Jesus opens their eyes to his very physical, tangible resurrection 
presence. And it's just this beautiful journey from devastation to confusion to amazement and to finally joy and delight and celebration and praise. And so we're here to, to join them in their praise on this Easter Sunday. And uh, what I want to focus on this year, we did the same passage last year, so I had to come up with something new this time. My wife said, why don't you just hit the replay button on your sermon? I said, I could probably do that. No one's going to remember, but I'll try something new this time. Um, I noticed something that in each of those three scenes, almost the exact same point is made at some point in the scene. Let me show you the verses I'm talking about, and I'll put them on the screens in case you don't have a Bible with you today. Um, each of them, well, here's the first scene, the women at the tomb, and the angels say this, don't you remember that Jesus told you, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. And then in the second scene, on the road to Emmaus, he tells those two disciples, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And then finally, at the end of the day, when he's with all the disciples, he says, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. So each time the same basic message is being given, the Messiah will suffer, he will be crucified, and he will die, and then he will be raised to life, and he will enter into his glory. And that is the heart of the Christian message, the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's at the core of what we believe. And he says it in each one of these scenes. But the thing that struck me as I was reading this week was there's a tone of almost necessity in each one of these. Like it had to be this way. Let me read him again. Look what he says in the first one. The son of man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners. The second one, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things. The third one, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me. He says, this had to be this way. These things must have happened in this way. Literally, in the original language, it says, it was necessary. It was absolutely necessary. The Messiah had to do it this way. His path had to be laid in this way. And what's clear to me as I read the disciples' reactions, at least for them, it's not at all obvious that it was necessary. Right? This is not at all what they were expecting. And that's why they're so devastated. They had no, no place in their imagination for a Messiah who is going to, to suffer and die and then be raised again. In their minds, Messiahs don't suffer. Messiahs rule. Messiahs conquer, right? Messiahs are kings. They, did, they had no sense of that. And it wasn't at all obvious that it was necessary, that it had to be this way. And so you have this really interesting dynamic, I think, in Jesus' ministry. All along in his ministry, he is headed towards the cross, and he knows it. This is the way it has to be. And so this week, I was picturing the cross, and I want you to picture, imagine the cross is like a door that is laid in Jesus' path, or maybe even a tunnel. And he knows that he has to walk through it, okay? So my picture was a tunnel. I'm going to give you a picture of a tunnel. And he's walking in his life along with his disciples, and he knows, I, my path, it has to go through this tunnel. And it is a dark, cold tunnel. It is a tomb, ultimately. It is death. It is suffering, right? But he knows what they don't know, which is this, that on the other end of that tunnel is a light, is new life, is resurrection life. It is so much different than the life he had before. And he's bringing about this whole new world for us 
through that tunnel on the other end. And he knows this is the way it has to be. And yet he's walking with the disciples and they're looking at him like, no, I don't, I don't see what has to be this way. I mean, why don't we just kind of do an end around this thing? You know, you're king. Why don't you just set up this force looks pretty great. Why don't we just set up a kingdom here? And he's like, no, it has to be this way. And so what I want to do this morning is just focus on that idea. It was necessary that this was the way the Messiah had to go. And I want to ask the simple question today, why? Why was it necessary? Why did it have to be this way? And I want to offer three reasons that I see in this passage, three reasons why it had to be this way. Why Messiah had to go through suffering and death and be raised to life. And my hope and prayer this week has been that as you hear these three reasons, you would be encouraged on this Easter Sunday. All right? All right, three-point sermon, right? They don't all start with the same letter, sorry, you know, but we're going to go for it. Um, So I hope you got three points in you this morning, because here we go. All right, number one, why was it necessary Uh, This is the gospel message here. It was necessary, first of all, because of sin. Let me read to you again the first one that the angels say to the women. They say, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of what? Sinners, right? It was necessary because of the reality of sinners in the world. And the disciples did not understand, they did not appreciate the full reality of that. When they thought of sinners, they would have known they're kind of imperfect. But when they thought of sinners, they would have thought about people out there. There's sinners out there. There's an enemy out there that the Messiah needs to deal with. And for them, the great enemy was Rome. It was the Roman Empire who was the occupying force in Israel at the time. The enemy might have also been the the religious leadership of the day that had become corrupted that kind of sold their souls and were in bed with the Romans. And so they're thinking when Messiah comes, he's going to deal with those sinners. He's going to deal with those enemies. He's going to defeat the Romans. He's going to purify the leadership. He's going to reign as king in Israel, set up the kingdom of Israel here and now. And none of that requires a cross, right? You don't need a cross for any of that. And Jesus came and he says, no, the, the Messiah has not just come to deal with sinners out there. The Messiah has come to deal with sin itself. And that is a reality, sin, that runs right through the heart of every one of us. And when I use that word sin, I'm just talking about this posture that's in every one of us. It's this self-centered quest for happiness apart from God. That's what it is. It's this self-centered quest for happiness apart from God and all that results from that. And I don't know about you, but the longer I'm on this journey with Jesus, the more I realize just how deep that quest is, how insidious it is, how integrated it is into my life in, in ways that I'm not even aware of. Um, I was reading a book this week um, called Invitation to a Journey, and the, the author, he, he gives us different kinds of sin that exist. Let me just talk you through three of the kinds he mentions. First, he mentions, well, of course, there are what he calls gross sins. And he doesn't mean like, ooh, yucky, gross. This is like an old word. He means like there's the overt and obvious sins that are out there. These are things that kind of come to mind. Drunkenness, right? Rampant greed, sexual immorality, violence, outbursts of anger, things that everyone kind of knows those are probably clearly out of line with God's kingdom. And if any of us were living that life, when we become Christians, we know I kind of have to move out of that stuff pretty quickly. And we usually do move out of that somewhat quickly. But then the author goes on to give another kind of sin, what 
uh, I'll call respectable sins. And these are the ones that are, that are very deliberate, um, but they are accepted in the Christian culture. And so no, no one really bats an eye. Things like the rampant materialism that is just accepted in American church culture and other things like that. You're like, ooh, shoot, now that's starting to hit home a little bit. And then one more, he goes even a level deeper than that to what he calls unconscious sins. And these are the ones that we're, we're not even aware of. There are blind spots it can be things like the deep pride that sets in in our hearts or, or the self-righteousness. Maybe other people see it in us, but we don't even see it in ourselves. Or he talks about these as sins of omission. These are things, not just things we do that we shouldn't do, but these are the things that we fail to do, and we're not even aware of it. It might be a complete neglect for the poor and the needy out in the world, and we're not even thinking about the fact that that's never on our radars. And for me, as I'm reading that, I'm like, oh my goodness, if I, as I look at my own journey over the last 20 years, like when I was 18, I, I came to Jesus, like all I was aware of is the gross sins. Like, I, and I thought if I could work those things out, I'll be, I'll be good. And what I realize now, like those weren't, even the, those weren't even the core issues for me. I'm just starting to get at what the core <laughs> issues are. I wasn't even ready to know what the deeper issues are. And yet that's, you know, 25 years into this journey, and God has been gracious to reveal this stuff to me in, in, in the timing that I'm ready for, and that's how it is with us. Okay, I'm not trying to get too, you know, depressed here on, on Easter Sunday. I say that all to say I think the longer we're on this journey with Jesus, yes, we grow, and yes, we change, but I think we also grow in our awareness of just how deep this stuff runs. And we grow then in our awareness that, yes, indeed, it is necessary. It was necessary that the Messiah would come and die for us. And this is what happens. Jesus looks out at that tunnel, the cross. And I want you to imagine that tunnel as a tunnel of sin, okay? And all that sin does, all the violation of God's good principles that happen when we sin. And God is this just God who does not let those kinds of violations go unpunished. They must be punished. And yet God also loves us and is merciful. And so the cross is his necessary solution to his justice and his mercy, all right? And on the cross, Jesus takes on our sin, the sin of others, but the sin of ours too, the gross stuff, the respectable stuff, even the unconscious stuff. What it says in Isaiah is this, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the sins of us all. In that dark tunnel, Jesus takes on himself our sins. He pays the penalty for our sins. He pays the debt. He is the sacrifice. He serves the sentence. There's all sorts of metaphors the Bible gives us. All that to say, Jesus takes on himself our sins at the cross and he cries out on the cross, it is finished Meaning your sin has been paid for. Everything necessary to take care of your sin has been taken care of. And it was necessary. But of course, it's not just the cross that was necessary, but it's also the resurrection. It was necessary that the Messiah suffer, but it's also necessary that he rise from the dead. He had to rise from the dead. And just think about this for a second. Imagine if Jesus never rose from the dead. Okay, one, we would never have heard of the guy, okay? We wouldn't be here right now, right? And he just died and he's done. We would never have heard of this guy. But two, we would never know if our sins were truly forgiven or not. 
Because that's what the resurrection is, among other things. It's God the Father's resounding yes to the sacrifice of Jesus. It's him saying, I accept it. I receive it. It is indeed finished. Nothing else has to be done. There is now no condemnation for any of you. And to demonstrate that I'm raising Jesus up to show you, you are forgiven and free and clear. And so when we think of an empty tomb on Easter morning, we shouldn't just think, yes, Jesus is alive, which we should, but we should also see that empty tomb and realize, yes, my sins are forgiven. Nothing more needs to be done. It is finished. I can live in his grace in light of all of my brokenness. And so that's the first thing I want to encourage you this Easter, that as you go out into the world, you know, you, I'm just going to let you know, you go out into a culture that, that wants to deny its brokenness. Right? I mean, our culture works really hard to, to cover up our broken parts, and we do that in really nice clothes. We do that with really nice bodies. We do that with really successful careers. Or we just blame the guy or the gal out there who's making society bad. We find all these ways to avoid our own brokenness. But we can step out as these refreshing people who live in the full and true light of who we are in all of our brokenness. We don't have to cover that. We don't have to hide that. We can just be our usual broken selves because we have the freedom of the resurrection. We, we know that we're forgiven. And so every fresh experience of our brokenness is just a fresh opportunity to experience God's forgiveness. Amen? Amen. All right, that's point one. <laughs> point two and three are a little faster, I promise. So first, it is necessary because of sin. Second, here's the second reason. Here's what he says to the two on the road to Emmaus. He says this, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things? And I want to focus on that word, suffer. It was necessary that the Messiah suffer. Now, let me just say again, in the disciples' minds, it was not at all necessary for the Messiah to suffer. Messiahs don't suffer. Messiahs dominate. They rule. They conquer, they win, right? And they thought that the Messiah was come to be a king, and he was going to be a king who would be praised and celebrated by all the people. And as Jesus comes, he comes not simply to be a king to be praised, though he does that, but he comes to be a king to be with us. We sang that song, Emmanuel, it means God with us. And he came to be God with us, not just in our good moments, but God with us in our suffering. And I don't know if you know this, I don't know if you read the news lately, but there's a lot of suffering in the world today. And, and we, um, you know, we're kind of shielded from certain kinds of suffering here in Orange County, like, you know, deep poverty, hunger, violence, slavery, we don't, we don't tend to see a lot of that. But even that being said, um, we all have our own suffering. And, and, I mean, it's interesting to think through. In this room right now, there is a lot of suffering going on. There's a lot of people silently suffering in their lives, different kinds of suffering. There's emotional suffering in this room, right? There's loneliness, there's depression, there's... There's grief, there's anxiety, um, there's, there's relational suffering, there's people who have lost loved ones, there's people whose marriages are, are right on the edge right now, and there's people who are just going through a, a brutal breakup, there's people who are struggling with their relationship with their kids, right? There's financial suffering in this room, there are people who are living in 
significant debt and are feeling the crushing burden of that debt. Um, There's physical suffering in this room. People who have cancer or have loved ones who have cancer or various forms of of physical pain. Some of you right now, you, you see that image of a tunnel and you're like, I feel like I'm in that tunnel. I mean, I feel like I'm in a dark tunnel right now. The walls are closing in and I don't see the light at the end of the tunnel that you just showed. And so if the Messiah came to be Emmanuel, God with us, then it's necessary that he too suffer. And so I want you to picture that tunnel this time, not a tunnel of sin, but a tunnel of suffering. And he willingly walks into this tunnel and enters really the worst suffering of all, right? The suffering of of humiliation, the humiliation and, and shame of the cross, of being betrayed, abandoned by his best friends, the intense physical pain he experiences, and then the spiritual weight of what's going on on the cross. He suffers. Isaiah, again, says he was despised and rejected. He's a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Surely he has borne our suffering and carried our sorrows. It was necessary that he suffer. But of course, what we celebrate on Easter was the fact that it was also necessary that he conquer suffering. And that's what he does. He comes out on the other end of suffering, having been faithful through suffering, having persevered through every form of suffering. And he he comes out on Easter Sunday, the king of the universe, including the king over suffering. And just to make this really practical, okay, really personal for a second, what that means is that right now there is a king who is, is in control of the whole universe. He's in control of it all. And as you cry out to him in whatever suffering you're going through, You do not have a king who looks down from heaven on you and says something like, I'm so sorry, that must be so hard. You know, like, oh, man, I can't imagine. That sounds sounds really brutal. That is not the king you have. You have a king who looks at you in your suffering and says, I know. I, I know. I know what it's like. I've been there. I know. I'm with you. I'm in control. And I know. And it's, a, it's an amazing thing that in our suffering, I mean, isn't that, isn't that what we want in suffering? You, you, you want someone, I mean, you want the suffering to go away, right? We, but when you're stuck in suffering, what you want is you want somebody who can be with you, who gets it, and yet is not powerless over suffering the way you're powerless in that moment. And that's exactly what we have in Jesus, a king who absolutely gets it. He's been there. In fact, he's been in worse. And yet he's not powerless like we are. And so he can be this presence, this faithful companion. He says, I know I'm with you. I will never leave you. I won't forsake you. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weak, challenging, suffering moments like this. And so on this Easter, may that encourage you as you go out into your life, whatever you face. And I want to say again, you know, we've got, we're living in a culture that does just about everything they can to avoid suffering, right? I mean, we try to numb ourselves with substances. We, we try to distract ourselves with entertainment. Um, 
We do all sorts of things to try to avoid suffering. And we can be people who courageously step into the suffering that is laid in our path. And we can even find meaning in our suffering. No, like, actually, it's in suffering. It's in that dark tunnel. That's the place, maybe more than anywhere else, where I encounter my Savior, where I find him, he's with me. And I find an intimacy and a dependency on him that I can't find any other way. I, I, would, I, I would like to change it if I could, but I can walk willingly into it because he's with me in it. Amen? Amen. So it was necessary. It was necessary for sin. It was necessary for suffering. And then finally, it is necessary, of course, because of death itself. Here's the last one he says at the end of the day to the disciples. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead. It's that word dead that caught my attention. And really, death is the ultimate enemy, right? I mean, behind sin and suffering, there lies the ultimate greatest enemy called death. And I'm looking out at this room and the various ages represented in this room. And I'm very aware that, uh, that for some of us, death is a much more present reality than for others of us. I mean, just to say it, there, there's some of us here who... We look at our lives and we see a long road ahead. Death is so far in the distance, we're, we're, not, even, it's not, even, we're not even consciously aware uh, that that's going to happen. And for others of us in this room, we're looking at the journey and the road is a lot longer behind us than it is in front of us. We've already lost lots of loved ones and maybe we're feeling the aging process and death is uh, more real to us. But wherever you find yourself <laughs> in that, um, death is a reality for everyone. Um, death is a guarantee for all of us. Death has 100% a winning streak against humanity. Almost 100%, right? Almost, yeah. And I said, that's an interesting thing, because if you picture that tunnel, like in the one hand, death is the, the ultimate mystery in life, right? It's the ultimate dark unknown. No one really knows. And yet it's inevitable for all of us. This great mystery that is a guarantee for all of us. And so... It was necessary that the Messiah not only take on sin, not only suffer, but that he would deal with death. And so one last time, I want you to picture that tunnel. This time, it's not a tunnel of sin. It's not a tunnel of suffering, but it is the dark, mysterious tunnel of death itself. And Jesus, as our Messiah, has to conquer death. And I was thinking about how he conquers death, and it, I was realizing, like, he has a very counterintuitive way of defeating his enemy. You know, it's sort of the Lord of the Rings style, where, you know, they have this ring of power, Sam and Frodo, and rather than put it on and use it to defeat Sauron, right, they decide to go into the very heart of enemy's territory itself, into the heart of evil, and to destroy it at its source. Very counterintuitive. Or if you don't like that, it's, it's the Rocky Balboa style of winning, you know, it's like, it's this counterintuitive strategy. I'll have my opponent hit me in the face for 12 rounds straight and tire themselves out. And if I'm still standing at the end, I win, you know. And that's kind of the move that Jesus makes, right? It's this counterintuitive move where he goes into the very heart of the enemy itself. And he basically says, give me your best shot, right? And death does. And it knocks him around and it knocks him down. <laughs> and then Easter morning comes. And Jesus 
rises, having conquered death, he says, I'm still standing. (laughs) You gave me your best shot, and here I am again, that the scriptures say it was impossible for death to keep his hold, its hold on him. And he conquers death, and he emerges from that tomb with a whole new kind of life that Mark was talking about earlier. It's called resurrection life. Life 2.0. It's indestructible life. It's an entirely different kind of life. The body that came out of the tomb, you could not have killed it again if you tried. Okay? It's, an, it's, a, it's a whole different kind of life. And from the other side of the grave, he now stands as king of the universe. And this is what he says to us in Revelation. He says, don't be afraid. I am the living one. I was dead. And look, I'm alive forever and ever. And then he says this. I love doing this. He says, look what I got. I hold the keys to death and Hades. Which means, should you ever find yourself there, I can get you out. I own the place now. I conquered death. And so I can get you out. It's a beautiful, beautiful image. So this Easter, as you go out, be encouraged by that. And again, we are living in a culture um, that is so afraid of death. I don't know if you've noticed this about our culture, but we avoid death like the plague, right? (laughs) I didn't say that first service. That would... I guess we, we, we avoid the plague like death. That'd, that's probably the, the way it should go. We avoid death like taxes. Yeah. Right? We celebrate youth. We celebrate vitality. We do our darndest to deny the aging process here, don't we? Right? Through cosmetics, through surgeries. And when it's, uh, when it's inevitable, what we do is we just kind of sequester people off into professional places. We don't have to see it. We don't want to see it. That's what our culture does with death. And again, because of the resurrection, we can be these refreshing people who don't have to do that. Who can look death square in the face. And in the words of 1 Corinthians say this, death. Where is your sting, right? Death, where is your victory now? That's a taunt if you didn't know it, right? Who's bad now, death, right? Ain't so bad anymore. We can do that and face death with hope because we have a king who has conquered death. Amen? Amen. So there you have it. Three reasons. It was necessary because of sin, Because of suffering and because of death. And what we celebrate on Easter is that because of his risen life, we now have forgiveness, we have a companion in our suffering, and we have resurrection life waiting for us on the other side of death. Death and resurrection. It is the heart of the Christian message. It is the heart of God. It had to be this way. It was necessary. And I leave you with this idea, one last thought, that death and resurrection... You could spend all week thinking about this. It's not just the pattern for Jesus' life, but it is the pattern for our lives too. It is necessary. And I don't just mean that when we, we die when we, you know, at the end of our lives. I mean every day of our lives, we're invited to walk into this pattern of death and resurrection. We're invited to die, to surrender, to let go, 
to come to the end of ourselves every day, to let go of control, to let go of our expectations, our plans, our comforts, even our own sense of our own goodness and righteousness or our, 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 the thinking that we can fix ourselves. It's to come to the end of all of that every day and then to find new life at the other end of that in God's grace, his acceptance, his forgiveness, and his plans and purposes, his story, his good news for us. And so we're invited to live out death and resurrection every single day. It is necessary. Let me pray. Well, Father, on this glorious Easter day, as we consider the realities that made the cross a necessity, sin and suffering and death. We give you thanks that you dealt with those and that you emerged as the victor over all of those. And now we can walk in our lives in your forgiveness and with you as our companion, knowing that resurrection life awaits us. Thank you. You have done it. It is finished. And now we get to walk into this new life, experiencing the power of your resurrection and continuing in this life to experience the fellowship of your suffering. For your glory, you are King, Lord, we pray. And all God's children said, Amen. Amen. Let's sing to the King together.